All right, as I said, we, um, we wanted to um, talk a little bit tonight. It was, was a little bit of an on-the-spur moment decision, but um, I just felt I have to head off again tomorrow to, to America and um, wanted to take the opportunity just to try and talk about some of the challenges that we face um, in the direction that we've, we've chosen to go. Um, in light of that, uh, I felt it was best if Chris and I both are able to kind of converse and talk and express some things. We, if we get time to, to feed back and, and talk into it, we will. I don't want to do that um, from the start because the danger is we could get stuck on one little thing and then down a particular track um, that we might not want to go um, fully yet. Um, but in view of this, uh, uh, we will talk some things quite um, bluntly and honestly um, tonight. So please um, understand that um, anything we talk about pretty honestly, because sometimes if, for example, questions have been asked, it doesn't help to find a Bible verse that kind of is almost near and preach about that, because then you don't connect it to the question that that was asked. So we'll try and deal quite bluntly with some questions that arise out of where we are on our journey and um, uh, confusions that people seem to find themselves spiraling into um, and uh, try and give some, some uh, insight and, and help on that. So um, what I, I'd like to feel is that anything that seems quite blunt you would take as being objective um, rather than uh, an attempt to kind of make a point about something, because it's not. Um, but if we're too ambiguous on some things, then we finish up uh, using lots of words, but actually saying nothing. So, so we'll try and raise some of the things that, um, uh, that come up. Um, I, obviously quite um, mistakenly, it appears at the moment, uh, of course, the truth is that um, uh, uh, the last word may not have been spoken yet, which I suspect, and there may well be a word after that, so this is not the end of the story, but um, many of you know, know our personal story and um, where we've come and the various things that have happened along the way to us, and um, it actually forced me to reevaluate several things. The first thing it forced me to reevaluate was myself. Um, and I've told you before, I found that uh, a lot of my belief was what I call academic belief. Um, I understood it to the point where I could explain it and preach it and give you every Bible verse imaginable. Whether I could do it uh, was another matter. So things that, that are important in life, like forgiveness and faithfulness, and honor, and um, long-suffering, and kindness, um, we only really know whether, whether they're real in our lives when we have things come up that require that we behave that way. Um, and sadly, it's too easy to fail those tests because none of those areas are actually easy to, to accommodate. And um, I understand now why when I see the story of Jesus, I don't see Jesus pushing the agenda that I was raised to push in the context of the kingdom of God and the gospel 
Um, I see him pushing a different agenda, which is very much the challenge being to be people who understand what the kingdom of God is about live that now. Um, uh, and so somehow we, somehow we floated away into this business about it's all about heaven and hell and the sacrifice of Jesus. And, uh, you know, those things are important in their context. Um, but they have been elevated, in my view, and, and I, think, I think biblically you can reinforce this, been elevated way beyond their significance in actually the Bible, which I found staggering um, and very difficult to come to terms with. And I began to, to realize that because I spent most of my life uh, believing that that was the point. So, I then mistakenly believed that having had a new experience of grace and having to live out that grace and receive that grace in my own life, that, that on sharing that grace, it would be the most attractive thing in the world. That everybody would just say, that's amazing. You know, where do I sign? Uh, so I've actually been quite shocked to find that he, um, in essence, the way of grace and, of course, the new covenant, which is, which is God's new promise that is built around grace, is not as popular as I thought it would be. And uh, so having, having pursued that now for many years and taught it and, and tried to bring some understanding, uh, we're now beginning to realize where the challenges come in the reception and embracing of that truth. I won't even call it a message. It's greater than a message. It's a truth. And uh, to try and address those so that we move forward, because the last word's not been spoken yet. We're still on a journey. We're on the front edge of something that, um, that in 20 years' time will be common. Um, but I pray God give us the grace and the strength to... Uh, to see that through. So, in having said that, in what we say, I appreciate we have um, two elements to the group here tonight. One is those like myself and Chris who uh, have either all of our lives or pretty much the bigger part of our current lived lives have um, been in church and have a background and understanding and a grasp of some things that we were raised with. So uh, we come with, with a history, some of, it, some of it good baggage, some of it bad baggage, but we come with a history. Uh, and then there are some of you who are fresh into this from a family that wasn't into this in the first place, so you don't come with the same baggage. So, so some of the things we talk about trying to unravel, you've never had raveled. So, so there was nothing to unravel, but, but I find still... Similar levels of confusion can still arise in the context of um, the challenges that the message that we are bringing to you presents. So, having said that as a bit of a, um, a platform, uh, I just want to start by reading you something from... There are some really good books out there. This, this is a good one by a guy called Jay Baker or Backer, if you like, who's the son of a guy called Jim Baker, or Jim Backer, who ran a major television network, Christian television network, and um, um, there were some issues in relationships and in finances that caused that to collapse. And 
Uh, Jim finished up uh, doing prison time in America, obviously, you know, disgraced by, um, well, by everybody, by the church, by the media, whatever. That's, that's another story. But his son, Jay, grew up in all of that struggle. So I like the things Jay has to say because um, he came in on the butt end of being born into a house um, incredibly wealthy um, from, you know, you can make money being a televangelist if, um, if you do it right, particularly in America. And uh, he's, he's raised in that, watched this happen to his father, watched his parents' divorce, watched his mother never really recover and ultimately die of cancer, which, you know, he feels potentially was due to the stresses caused by what his father did. But then also other things that, that Jay observes, which was that um, his father's friends... Um, who were constantly calling him and wanting to be on the TV and this, that, and the other, the moment that all this stuff went down, the phone never rang. None of them were calling him and saying, how can we help, you know, if mud's being thrown, we're going to get the mud on us, we're going to help you. He said they all disappeared like a rash, you know, I mean, just... So that left Jay um, in a, a, a distressed place, finished up, finished up really not knowing whether there was a God on drugs, all that stuff. Um, but walking a good journey, and these books are really good because they're very honest about that journey. And one of them is this um, um, faith, doubt, and other lines I've crossed. And um, I want to read you something from this to kind of kick off. So Chris and I are going to say a little bit together and we might you know, kind of bounce off each other um, as we go on this. But I won't read you the, the whole thing, but I want to read you this because this is part of how these kind of challenges really shake our theology and our thinking uh, and therefore affect the whole atmosphere of what we do unless we're all on board understanding what we're trying to accomplish. So let me read you this. Uh, in Matthew 18, we read this story. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times... Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. You may have heard this passage before and heard it explained that Jesus doesn't mean to count up to 77 times, or 77 times seven, some manuscripts read. He means to never stop forgiving. I think that's true, but my question is, does God practice what he teaches here? Sharon Baker, in her book, Raising Hell, points out, that all the atonement theories from Anselm to Calvin, which are obviously fathers of the, the church as we know it, have one thing in common. God would not simply wipe our slate clean of sin by forgiving it. We believe in a system where God isn't really forgiving anything. Just get this, this is staggering. If Jesus died to pay for our sins, what is God forgiving? If the sins are paid for, there's nothing to forgive. God has received payment or satisfaction. God isn't forgiving. Baker illustrates this well. If Eric owes me $100 and I make him pay me back and then say, now I forgive you your debt, he'd think I was nuts. Any payment on Eric's behalf cancels the need for forgiveness. 
The only way to truly forgive the $100 Eric owes to me is to just forget about it. Grace then, being free, requires nothing. It's not just for the people who do the right thing. It's not just for the people who believe the right thing. It's not just for the people who confess or repent or turn. A God who asks us to love enemies, forgive those who harms us, and pursue reconciliation and restoration instead of retribution cannot also require some sort of payment or satisfaction or substitution. Now, I wanted to read you that because it shows you the actual strength of the issue that we're trying to address here. And therefore, for some of us who were raised in certain lines of thought, the challenge that brings to our thinking. Um, But also to highlight to some of you the reason why... um, Often we as a church, within the church community, uh, get some quite unkind things said about us. Because once you go down this line, you are not, you're not, in a sense, towing the party line. And yet when you think about it, isn't it fascinatingly true to think that if payment has to be made for something and then you give forgiveness after the payment, you're not actually forgiving anything. So it doesn't mean that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was worthless or meaningless. It just means that how we view all of that is making a real shift and a real change. And what it does is it it reinstitutes God to be the unlike God, ungodlike God. Because if you understand this this phrase, it will help you, but um, Greek philosophy and, and, and Greek religion... Uh, the gods lived on Mount Olympus. How many of you know that? That all the Greek gods lived on Mount Olympus. And uh, Mount Olympus really is a representation of pretty much every religious system um, that the world has experienced other than the Abba of Jesus. In that they all consistently have this in common. The gods are angry. The gods must be appeased. Um, If you please the gods, you will be rewarded. If you offend the gods, you will be punished. So although even in Christianity we would say that's not the God we believe in, I have to be honest and say in my 58 years that a lot of the implication and sometimes the straight talk about that is that if you please God, you will be rewarded. If you you upset God, you will be punished. So, So my view is this, if you understand it, that that in the attempt to move from Mount Sinai, which is where the law was given, the commandments, all that fire and judgment and don't touch the mountain, in an attempt to reach what we know biblically as Mount Zion, which is the place of the rule of the kingdom of God, God's rule, uh, we got stuck on Mount Olympus. And my passion and my heart for whatever years I have left is, is to flag that up and get us off Mount Olympus, where, where our God really, although we say he's the only God, actually just looks like the other gods. And hence I've told you before, the reasons why we have to have phrases like bigger, better, mightier, stronger, in more places, knowing more. Not because God may not be like that, but it becomes actually subconsciously a competition to say he's better than the other gods, when the truth is he's really the only true God. And uh, ungodlike in everything he does. So 
I find this conflict that we've been trying to fight of how can Jesus say to me, love your enemies, but God hate is. How can Jesus say to me, forgive an innumerable amount of times, but then teach a God who has limits to the amount of time that he will forgive? And um, I'm very grateful for all I was taught about coming to the Father through Jesus, and I believe we come to the Father through Jesus. But, but sometimes how we have emphasized that is like, well, God is unlimited in his forgiveness, but only providing you get everything right. See, see where I'm coming from with this. So what it does create is um, a far more blessed gospel, but a far greater insecurity in those who pursue that gospel. And the danger of missing the point is always there because Jesus' disciples kept harping on about, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Which means Jesus came and said all this stuff and they, they, uh, they got a master's degree in missing the point. They were still convinced right up to his crucifixion that what he had come to do was deliver them from the oppressions of the Romans. Didn't get it. So we, we have to be careful that we get the point and we get it right. And, and, and part of our journey is a sincere desire, hopefully with humility, to get the point. I think there's a point that's... that's well, to be missed might be the wrong term, but it's gotten lost somewhere in a lot of other stuff. Should I come in on there and actually yeah. ask you then, because this is one of the questions that's come up quite regularly in you know, my travels with people in the church, is if we've then moved away from the fact of um, God allowing Jesus to be our ticket that saves us from hell, uh, and we're no longer seen as that as being the major emphasis. It's, as you've just said, it's not that it's not part of the story, but it's not the major emphasis. Then the question comes up, then what is God for anymore? And so we have, you know, it comes up quite regularly. Well, I understood what God was for before, but now we're into this new way of thinking. What is God for now? So I'm asking that question to you, but I've also got, you know, some contribution to ask but that is the question that comes up when we're asking these questions these are not questions that we've come up with because we thought they'd be a good idea these are literally questions that people are asking and they're very valid because it's true that uh, if you've had a particular way of thinking for a long period of time and you've been very secure in that way of thinking the moment these things are challenged um, it, it really comes as quite a you know quite a shock I mean, you'll agree, Danny, won't you? Um, so, you've said, there is a point, so what is the point then in the context? I mean, somebody said to me the other day, you know, what is God for? What does it look like? Now, I was able to say, well, what did it look like before? Which we've just said, it looked like that God through Jesus was my ticket into heaven as opposed to hell. And yeah. I had to, you know, live according to the rules, but then ultimately... Uh, there was this opportunity for me, but yeah. what does it look like now? And just, just let's stick to that and we'll move on to some other things um, later. So do you want to have a look at that yeah, or not? I'll, yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one, one relates to, first of all, our own 
approach to questioning things. For example, um, someone asked the question about, you know, well, um, what was the thing about not looking like it did before? I've lost just the wording on that. The question was, what is the point of God now? And I said, well, what was the point of God right. before? And we said, yeah. well, the point of God before was X, yeah. Y, and Z. What is it now? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because sometimes when we are disturbed, we can ask a question that we never really had answered in the first place. So some people ask the question, well, you know, now we're here, what does this look like? Um, but if I were to ask you, well, what did it look like before? Um, my experience says that, that most people couldn't answer that. So it becomes, we, we often answer our disturbed condition, we, we deal with that with the question when we haven't actually thought about what, where really were we before that. It's just that our, in some ways, our, our lostness, let's call it that, has become more profound with what's been introduced into the... Um, so it's not that we weren't kind of lost a little bit before, we just feel more lost now. Um, I think the issue for me about what's the point is, because I know this relates. I mean, I, my, my whole experience was, um, we are sinners, we need a saviour. True, true. Okay, so, so please don't misrepresent some of this thing, because some people have said, oh, now we don't believe in hell. Well, that's a misrepresentation. Nobody's said we don't believe in hell. What we said is, we don't believe in the man-created word that takes three other words into it and then conveys something more akin to Dante's Inferno than to Jesus' view of, and the biblical view of, of, of things there. It's also fascinating that when Jesus talked to those first century Jews, uh, because in the Jewish religious understanding there was no concept of Eternity in heaven as we understand it, okay, there was a concept, but again, that's not. Um, when Jesus is talking to them about certain things, they weren't thinking some of the thoughts that, that we now think, because a lot of the things that we actually feel is good Christian doctrine, it may amaze you to, to realize that most of that's only emerged in the last 300 years. Uh, and it's quite shocking and frightening. I mean, I'm a I'm church leader. I'm, you know, it shocked and frightened me a little bit to realize that some of these ideas have just emerged in the last 300 years. Now, some of you might think that what we're talking about now is like the last in a catalog of emergence of 300 years, but actually, you can trace this all the way back and begin to lock into it right from Jesus and the apostles um, and early church fathers in the first, second century. Um, the reason I'm saying that is, is because sometimes our minds are driven by certain concepts. Now, um, one of those concepts is that, and th this was my belief, man, man is, a, is sinful. Um, God judges sin. Man needs a savior. Jesus is the savior. Jesus saves us from our sin so that God can accept us and we go to heaven. But if we don't accept Jesus personally, then we don't go to heaven. We go to what is the idea of hell. So that was broadly the, um, the narrative that, 
that we were raised with, but that wasn't what was driving Jesus' narrative. Um, Jesus' narrative was, was very much about reinstituting what was instituted at the very beginning. And I talked a little bit about this on, on Saturday. I didn't do as good a job as I would have liked to have done, but, but there is within that the essence that I, I, I showed you that God creates man, puts him in the garden, and man's job is to, is to turn the world into the garden. So God wants man to be the ambassador of God to cause the beauty of all that God is to change what is a hostile environment. So that was always the gospel. That was Jesus' gospel, right? His gospel was for his kingdom to come, his will to be done here on earth like it is in heaven. His gospel was that if we, we have a community and a society that forgives and is long-suffering and is kind and who gives and who takes care of, um, then what we do is we create an environment where the kingdom of God is not somewhere out there, but the kingdom of God begins to find its place in the pain of humanity, in, in, in the difficulty of humanity. So... This question's often asked because the driving factor at one time about God was we have to get people to heaven. Um, so that was a driving factor. Now, I have to say that if you really believed that that was the point, the whole point, um, you know, people are going to hell, we have to win them to Jesus, um, you are either uncaring or you would have worked a heck of a lot harder uh, if you really believe that to make sure that everybody you met in every occasion would know the gravity of the situation that they were in and that this is what was essential. Um, so, you know, there's not any of us really that can cast stones at one another in, in that context because if we really believed that, what were we messing around at, you know? And I, I point the same finger at myself, you know, my efforts into that, you know, preacher, a message of, of inviting people to come to Jesus. And, but meanwhile, you know, all this going on in the world. So, so if that was the point then, we didn't do a very good job of the point then, um, to be perfectly honest. But I think that issue is part of the issue in that we've said that um, you know, we've used different phraseology to said that, say that God wants to invite you into his life, which I really love that. I really feel that far more reflects the truth. Um, but of course, once you take out of the equation the uh, threat of hell, the reward of heaven, somehow we, we kind of get all lost and, and don't know how to function. Cause so, so what are we inviting people into then? This is, this is the question, isn't it? So if we're not inviting them into be part of the church in order that they might understand that they, by accepting Christ, they have a ticket to heaven and not to hell, what are we now inviting them into? I... Need to answer that. Yeah, my, my personal view where I'm, I'm leaning um, towards is that we're inviting people back into fellowship, back into relationship, um, with God the Creator, God the Father. Now, I still believe, I mean, don't think in all of this, if, if we dismiss 
scriptures to support our viewpoint. We're no different to any religious organization that, well, we just won't bother with that. Um, I still believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Absolutely. Jesus himself said nobody comes to the Father except through me. Um, How that works on a conscious level, I have some different different views about. Um, Not because I minimize the role of Jesus in bringing this to the Father, but because I maximize the role of Jesus bringing this to the Father, and I think we minimized it. I think we made it very limited. Um, I think we made it um, using specific phrases in specific ways at specific times was, was the way. I think it's much, much broader than that. But um, So I think now the point is... is Still, rather than getting people to heaven, for me, the point is um, introducing to people the living real possibility of a known and experienced relationship and fellowship with the Father. Okay? And I believe there's a big difference in that because, because Jesus never said nobody comes to God except through me. Because the moment you use the term God, our brains go right back to Mount Olympus again. You know, God is angry, God... So we have things to deal with, like, you know, God will punish sin. Um, I have some different views on that now in, in the context of how that works because we, we keep coming back to Mount Olympus um, uh, possibilities. So for me, it's about really um, bringing people back to relationship with the Father, knowing that that relationship will do in our lives what it did with Adam in the beginning, which allows us to bring... Transformation. Now, of course, in that, uh, the question comes selfish or selfless. Um, I could put a strong case that um, if we have the wrong view on God's judgments and God's provision and, and what Jay says, that actually God forgives, but actually he's not forgiven you because the price has been paid. So how can you forgive something that's been paid? So if God forgives, he has to forgive something that's not been paid, so we have to have a whole different look at how all that that figures out. But but um, there can be a selfish element to the whole thing of I've prayed the prayer, I've said the words, I've asked Jesus into my heart, now I'm okay. Um, so there can be a very selfish element to that, uh, rather than the selflessness that says I've been invited into fellowship with the Father. Not so that I can get out of here, um, but so that in here I can bring the kingdom of God and, and the blessing of God and the fruitfulness of God into people's lives. Well, isn't the whole idea of the, the church as the body, um, doesn't it exist in essence to be the expression of that love between the Father and the Son? And so we are sort of a visible expression of what is presently invisible in the sense that God is invisible. You know, the, the whole spirit realm in, in essence is invisible, but we are visible and we can actually express it um, among e- each other. So in, in the sense, you know, you could come to the next question, well, okay, we've had, what was the point of God? We've, we've also got then, what is the point of the church? What, what role does that have if we're saying that, you know, um, 
God through Christ has reconciled the whole world to himself. You know, we've, we've talked about Jeremiah 31, where it says, no longer shall a man teach his brother know the Lord, because they'll yeah. all know him from the, 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 the least, least to, the, to, the to the greatest. Thank you. Um, so if we're saying that that's happening, so that it almost makes the church uh, invalid in some way, because you're saying, well, it's already going on. What do they need need to know but we're at what we're actually saying is that there needs to be a representation of it in the earth because if there isn't how do people get plugged in to this uh, this reality that's there but is often not seen so that puts a great to to my mind it it puts a greater onus on the church when we're talking about the people, not the building, but a greater onus because it's saying we are that example that's, that's saying the love between God and the Son that was willing to go to that extent uh, for the love of, of the world, that's what then we have to show to everybody as that example. Yeah. See, I get just yeah from no, him. I'm, that's great. See how I'm, long he speaks? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I so you see, so agree. you have to then ask, okay, why do we invite people into to the church? What, you know, why do we ask people to bother coming? Is it because we just want them to be part of a club? I mean, what, what, is, what is the idea? I mean, I can answer that rather than offering it to you. It's that, you know, we want them to actually um, un, uh, live their humanity to the full. And often... People don't because they've, they've some, somehow uh, missed, missed a link or whatever in the, in, in the process. Although, I've had even people asking me, okay, well, can't people live life to the full without, without the God factor? Now, how many people have asked that? Come on, be honest. People say, well, there's great people in this world. There's people with loving families. There's, you know, people who work hard. You know, they're doing their best. Um, the kind, the, the gift to charity. So what is it that they need more than that in the context of what we're talking about? Am I being naughty in asking no. these questions? See, people ask those questions of us and we have to be able to, to answer it, haven't we? Yeah. Do you want me to have a... Yeah. Um, I think there's a couple of things. As long as you don't ask ten, answer ten questions in one. No, I'll answer. You answer one. The, <laughs> I think there's three things that have that have come up there. One is, and, and I know where it comes from. Once you begin to look at grace from this angle, what our brain says, well, if everybody are already, whatever terminology you want to use, saved, redeemed, bought, um, you know, kind of what's the point of, of God anyway? Because they, you know, um, you know if, if they already are, well, the truth is knowledge is a wonderful thing. Um, knowledge turns theory into reality. So if I, if I enter the Euro Millions and I have a winning ticket but I don't cash in that winning ticket, um, even though that money is assigned to me, even though that wealth has become mine, actually, because I have no knowledge, I will never personally be able to live in the power that that knowledge then 
brings me. So you know my viewpoints on it. I, I think God has, I think God has, has made the way for all humanity to be restored to himself total and complete. I do not believe that all humanity will be restored to himself, but that comes down to a matter of the choice of the person um, desiring to opt out. So I'm, I'm a little different on that. So, so I do believe there are those who, who will choose um, not to. But we could say then, if God's ex- extension of grace, because if forgiveness is what Jay talks about, and, and forgiveness has extended to more people than we really have considered it has been extended to, because we thought that forgiveness only came if you said certain magic words or did certain things, um, which poses all kinds of, of difficulties and problems on the wider viewpoint. Um, if, if that's it, well, you know, why, why do we need to bother? Well, um, we need to bother because Jesus came that we might know, right? The Bible talks about, John says, these things are written that you might know that you have life and that that life is in his son. There's power in knowledge. And my desire is that people know the grace of God. People know the forgiveness that's been brought to them. People know that they have been empowered to change barrenness into fruitfulness. Um, uh, It's about knowing him. So Paul, the apostle Paul said something. He said, all that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, by some means to enter in, so, so Paul was trying to get through that, that no matter how big grace is, there is a need. People need to know. So, so if God's grace is bigger than our systems that we have developed that said you've got grace if you do this, that does not excuse us from the need that people need to know. People need to know this grace. And there are so many people out there who have negative, very negative concepts of God and of the church, partly because um, all they saw was how God lives on Mount Olympus and he's angry and uh, his anger must be appeased and um, if you make him angry, he'll punish you and if you make him happy, he'll bless you. And so they've been introduced, so there are so many of them need to know this wonderful good news about this God of grace and this God of kindness and this God who says, well, just come and find me. Just come and find out. Come and look. So, so Isn't it also about, you know, getting back into partnership with the original plan? Yeah. So, you know, what God said to Adam right in the beginning was, you know, be fruitful and multiply, you know, yeah. rule over. I always get these in the wrong fruitful order. Fruitful multiply. Subdue and Subdue rule over. Subdue and rule over. Isn't it the, the, the whole idea that God's looking to restore that partnership in order that the, that the world... Because some people say, well, the world will never get any better. I mean, do you, do you actually uh, you know, believe that with partnership with God, that those things actually can be put right? I, I definitely believe that they can be put right. Whether humanity... Um, this side of when all this finishes um, will submit themselves to the possibility okay, of that but isn't is that another the question. Point, then? But isn't that the point of those who say they do submit to the idea of God's original plan and we're saying we are getting back with the programme that this is the example so we say that okay, just as 
you know, when Jesus was on the earth and he was that representation, the exact representation, as you, you, you preached the other week, of, of God in the earth. And what he was doing, he was going around saying, okay, everything that, that you guys are doing now, there's so much exclusivity, there's rejection, there's um, discrimination, there's all this stuff. And what really Jesus came to say is that's not what the Father wants. And so the church really picks up on that to say, okay, while we are in this situation and in relationship with God, we're going to make sure that we restore all those things. Isn't that yeah. really what, what it should, should be about? I, I believe that's our call and objective. Jesus, Jesus came talking <laughs> about the kingdom of God. So, you know, for some of you, when you read the Bible in Matthew, you'll read the term kingdom of heaven. Um, which can be a little misleading because, again, the way we've been raised makes us think kingdom of heaven is, you know, God ruling somewhere. Um, when you go into to Mark and Luke, um, you read the term kingdom of God, which is the two are interchangeable. When Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, he's using it from a Jewish mindset thought. So he's not thinking an eternal place out there. Uh, he's thinking about heaven is the representation of God's rule, okay? So we get those two terms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. If you look at the Gospels um, for any length of time and really search out, you will find that Jesus' core message was about the kingdom of God. So about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of heaven. So he tells stories like the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And uh, if you look at those stories, they are, they are stories that challenge our being now. There are stories that challenge our attitude to each other now. There are, there are stories about challenge what we do with our resources. They're the stories that challenge about how we relate to lost things. Even though those lost things became lost by all kinds of different means, whether it's a sheep or a coin, Jesus uses those stories, um, or whether it's a son, or they became lost by various means, but the issue is, how are you going to deal with lost things, okay? Um, and that the rejoicing of heaven, even in that parable, what we would do, we'd rejoice that we had 99 sheep that were safe, nine coins on the headband that were okay, and one son that was working his pants off that had stayed faithful to his dad. So we'd think, well, that's not bad, you know. 99, nine, one son that's okay. But if you read that story, it talks about heaven rejoicing, which, which is God's kingdom where God rules rejoicing. And heaven doesn't rejoice over all the things that we try to safeguard and keep safe. Heaven's focus is always on... Um, going past what is the self-righteous, because Jesus is making a point, you know, 99 that needed no repentance. Well, where is the 99 that need no repentance? It doesn't, doesn't exist. So Jesus' point is not, you know, try and be one of those who are safe, because he was making a point. They think they're safe, but actually in that parable, the sheep are in the wilderness. He left them in the wilderness. Um, the rejoicing is over, the, over what is the lost thing. So, so the kingdom of God is always about things that 
that are not out there in the way beyond blue somewhere. They're all about, okay, whatever that is, and, and, and it does exist, and, and somewhere out there, the invisible God rules, but, but the kingdom of God was all about that touching here. And that it comes when the appreciation of our lives connects with that coming here. So, so, so there is a point to this whole business of, it, you know, the idea, well, if God is doing all that for people, we don't need to do anything. We just carry on with our lives and it's fine. Um, but no, we want them to know. The word became flesh and lived among us, it said, so we could behold the Father. So therefore, the word becoming flesh in you, God's living life in you is here so people can behold the Father. So it's not pointless now. We don't need to bother, you know, well, if, if God's done all that. It, it's, we, we have the same relevance upon our lives that Jesus had when he was born on the earth, which is to say... I want you to see the Father. And Jesus, how did Jesus say you see the Father? You see me, you see the Father. Therefore, my life has to be something that allows people to see what the Father's like. So that's a lot of what I tried to learn over the last 11 years in my reaction to things that were happening to me. When you look at how I dealt with my situation can you see what the Father is like? When you've seen in our family and in our lives how we've dealt, can you see what the Father is like? And that's the objective of our life. So we're not redundant because God's grace has suddenly exploded beyond the little boundaries that we gave it. Now, of course, in connection with that, following on from what Chris said, that therefore means that, that, that church has not lost its relevance because... This is where we come to, to develop our thinking, to equip ourselves, to strengthen ourselves, to receive, to be with one another as a community, to accomplish that objective, okay? Because, um, I mean, I read just lately that the whole purpose of the church is to form Christ-like people expressing a Christ-like love. So really, it's a very simple objective, isn't it? But it's the one that... In our humanity, we probably find the hardest to... I was thinking that it's probably easier to preach what you would call the old covenant gospel of offering a ticket uh, and escape from hell than it's actually to be Christ-like and express a Christ-like love. So in one sense, you could say, oh, let's go back to the old way because if we're going to say the sinner's prayer, you know, get them to, you know, basically... Um, you know, understand that Christ has, has forgiven their sin, and you leave it at that. That's why, in many ways, um, you know, the, the whole thing of church attending and church activities can actually be a, 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 a distraction. I don't know if that's the right way from what really are the demands of what you would call true Christianity, because religiosity starts us in or gets us involved in lots of activities that actually don't hit the mark. So the mark is being Christ-like and expressing Christ-like love when actually we can get all sort of tied up in so many other things and not do the thing that's really yeah. important. Yeah? Just yeah, I think that the danger of and the tendency of humanity to become separatist is always there. Um, again, you know, bringing you back to Bible because it, it, 
it's helpful if you view it through its like right lens. The, Jesus came into a situation that was extremely nationalistic. <coughs> so if you want a, a full-blood Jew, you were an outsider. So if you were in Israel but not a full-blood Jew, i.e. a Samaritan, and most of you have heard the story of the good Samaritan, the point being that this guy who, who in terms of his ethnicity, his nationality was not considered pure. He was a half-breed. Um, he wasn't right. Um, was the one who Jesus said was the one who actually finished up showing the Father more than those whose external qualifications would have suggested that they were the ones that, that would have done it. So, so Jesus is speaking into a very nationalistic environment where uh, you had the Samaritans and the, the statement was the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We don't mix with the Samaritans. They're half-bloods, they're half-breeds. If we mix with them, it's kind of, well, and, and what? What is that going to do to you? You know, I mean, if you touch a Samaritan, will you get, you know, some kind of disease equivalent to Ebola? You know, I mean, what? But literally, Jews would not, would not mix with the Samaritan. Also, again, I'm putting you back into context. If, if disaster was happening in your life, you were definitely a sinner, according to Jewish thinking. You, Jesus told a, a story about it was, a, it was, he referred actually to a news issue of the day when a tower fell on people and killed them. And Jesus said, so are you saying that those people who the tower fell on were unrighteous sinners? Um, and, and he used a couple of examples like that because in those days, if, if you were sick, if you were poor, if some disaster had overtaken you, as far as they were concerned, you, we're not going to have anything to do with you because that shows that obviously you are, not, you are not blessed by God. So you've got all that stuff that's going on in what we would have to loosely call in that day the church. So this was the, the Bible preaching, you know, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, the Bible teaching, church attending, Fasting, going without food to, to pray, praying. They were doing all this, all this stuff. But, but all this kind of distortion had began to come in there that, that, that made them unable to accept anything that wasn't, by their definition, pure. So we would have been called dogs by them. I mean, not, not very politically correct these days. Um, but we would be known as dogs because anybody who, you know, the Samaritans were bad enough, but at least they were half Jew. Uh, if you weren't a Samaritan, you were a dog. They called us dogs. That's why when, when Jesus was challenged one day about uh, when a woman was, was looking for healing for her daughter, um, a phrase was used about taking the children's bread, i.e. what belonged to the Jews, and giving it to the dogs. I mean, Jesus was really playing on words here, really to show more the Jews who were listening to him, how horrendous they had become than he was to say to this woman, you're a dog. That wasn't his point because her daughter's about to get healed. He was trying to show them, look, can, can you see what's happened here? You think you're this and she's a dog and it's not, it's not appropriate. Now, 
The reason I mention that is because the drift to make church something that that um, builds and endorses our um, our identity that is beyond and separate to and above others of whatever their challenges or needs can become no different to that issue that Jesus faced on his day. And the, the, the problem is, life has taught me that, that we drift into institutionalization because we don't like the idea of what, Chris has a great phrase on this, about static belief and dynamic faith. We, we don't like... We're coming to in a minute. Yeah. Well, I'm giving you a good yeah. lead in. We, 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 we and, and I include myself, actually become very uncomfortable in an environment of what, what I call dynamic faith rather than static belief. So static belief starts with God visited Moses, right? God gave Moses 10 commandments. The people broke the 10 commandments. Um, God gives Moses the answer because the people are now dying bitten by serpents. So he says, build a, a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole and whoever looks at the serpent will live. So the people look at the serpent and the, the consequence of the snake bite leaves them. And then what we find is then they're worshiping an idol that they've now built of the snake because they've missed the point that that was only applicable to the time in their history when they were being bitten by snakes and that was God's answer for that then. Now, it was a picture of Jesus being lifted up on the cross, but how easy it is for Jesus not to become the living word of God accomplishing something for the Father and become a symbol of Christianity that then we come round like the Jews did, institutionalize that into a religion that then becomes exclusive and the truth is we love exclusivity it makes us feel special it makes us feel we've accomplished something so I don't think I think we like the idea of not being exclusive the church not being exclusive uh, we like the idea but the practice of it I think we find a little more difficult well we've we've talked a lot about in the new covenant that it's more an issue of it being a, a, a des destinational theology than it is, sorry, direction directional, the, there you go, See, I mm -hmm. got it wrong, um, directional theology rather than destinational. Now, isn't that because there is something about humanity that like, you, you know, you, you mentioned that issue of static uh, belief versus dynamic faith, that when we don't have a list of things that make us feel safe, we somehow immediately think well we must have it wrong so even in the journey that we've come because things have become much more fluid yeah. that in itself brings a certain amount of insecurity now if you're the if you're a bit of an explorer that comes nice you, you enjoy that fluidity but if you're not that way inclined, you can imagine how people might, you know, have asked the question, well, I don't get it anymore, or, or I feel very insecure, or I've lost, the, I've lost the plot. Because people seem to like to really know where they stand, which we'll talk about some more of that in a little minute, so I don't want to go too far ahead. But do, do, do you find that that is a basic um, 
flaw of humanity that we, you know, I, I think of like the, um, you know, the, the, the story of the pioneer and the settlers. And I, I don't know whether you guys, guys remember it from a long time ago. We read it, but it's sort of the, the, the sort of um, the parallel between, you know, in cowboy language, between the pioneers who are wanting to take their carriages out into the Wild West and the others who want to build a little township and sort of stay very safe and they've got a mayor and they've got a sheriff, they've got all this going on. And um, it's almost as though the church struggles to have an identity outside of a very rigid set of rules and the moment that you take that away almost like a constitution it's like you yeah. know take away the american constitution and you you're you know they're absolutely well they're lost aren't they they haven't a clue where they are and it's similarly with the church if you take away some sort of um listed do's and don'ts everybody feels as though you know there, there is no real identity yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's become very evident to me over recent years of, of going the way that we've gone, is that it seems to have, in my view, introduced more insecurity into most people's lives than it's introduced security. So we have to ask the question, one, is what we're teaching so desperately wrong that actually we're robbing people of the right to feel secure. So that, that's one question that, that needs to be, be asked. Um, or the other one is, has, have we lost the ability um, to be secure in acceptance that is not driven by a, a, a series of standards and rules that, that bring us approval. Um, I would suspect that, that the latter is, is the case. That was interesting, we had one of our dear friends who came in a couple of months ago when Joel was, was teaching, who shouted out when Joel was preaching, look, never mind about all that, just tell us what's right and wrong. That's a massive giveaway, particularly, you know, without being disrespectful, um, in an intoxicated condition how interesting that that the drive wasn't tell me tell me how much I'm loved and how I feel that love but tell us what's right and wrong almost like if you just give me what I have to do and what I don't do that everything will be okay now I don't think everything is okay by that but I think we feel that everything's okay if we're able to do that but if you think about it why do we feel okay because we have we feel that we ourselves have achieved a particular standard of behavior, of, let's use biblical terms, holiness, of sanctification, of righteousness. And we feel better, but actually my question would be, do we feel better because we are really closer to the love of God, or do we feel closer to God because we're closer to the image that we have created of a God who will reward me if I reach a particular standard. You see what I'm saying? So, so actually we can finish up inventing in our own inner being uh, the way that we feel good about stuff because we all feel, you know, the chest puffs out if we feel we achieve something. Uh, 
I, I believe that came as a result of what Adam and Eve did when they took from the tree because once you've introduced the system of good and evil and right and wrong, uh, that, that, it, that goes through all of society. So, you know, you are measured by your successes and your failures. You are elevated or demoted by your successes or your failures in every, every area of life. And, and then things like, things like guilt and shame and condemnation are the emotions that, that accompany that. Um, you know, even down to simple things like a kid doing an exam at school, fails the exam. You know, we immediately, where we gravitate to is, is guilt, condemnation, shame, failure. Um, and yet, if we pass the exam, we feel completely differently. And if we pass it with a better grade than somebody else, we feel absolutely amazing because there's something inside of us that still likes to attain acceptance through achievement. Now... I believe that started the day that Adam and Eve ate from the tree and you introduced that system. Before that, it was right to accomplish, and again, this is where we start getting wrong. When God created Adam and said, you know, tend the garden, it didn't mean just pop in for an hour or two every once in a while when you feel like it. And, you know, if you're, you know, if you're drunk, your cocktail and, you know, you're feeling fine, well, just, you know, trim a leaf here and there. It was really that Adam, in partnership with God, bought into the whole thing of this kingdom change and the garden became his life. And therefore then transporting the garden outside became his life because he was passionate. So it wasn't based on acceptance through any level of achievement. It was based on, on a response to the love and the kindness and the generosity and the opportunity that we have been afforded. So... So we have to have a shift of thinking. Um, but the reason I've said all that is what's fascinating is we all feel far more comfortable with the system of rewards and punishments. And that, that then becomes the problem because, because that actually, if we're honest, is our preference. We, we, we want to be loved, accepted, forgiven by God, but still have a system of rewards and punishments. So, which, which brings us to the whole issue of um, even leadership in the context of the church. You know, people come and they ask you your advice. And um, it's almost as though, and I know this is a bit of a statement, but this is a little bit of my experience and yours to a degree, is that if you don't give solid instruction or command as to what is right or wrong, you're almost seen as not doing your job. So like when somebody will come to me and say, well, should I do this or should I do that? And I'll say, well, what do you want to do? And it's almost like, well, that's not what somebody in your position should say. But if you are following the whole um, idea that everything is permissible but not everything's beneficial, because nobody's saying that everything... Is a, is a good idea, but it's actually, you're free, but mm. obviously there will be a consequence. That is really the only absolute that one can give. It's like, well, you know, I, I, I can just say to you, this is not a very good idea because I think there will be consequences that might be detrimental, but you know what? You're free. <laughs> you can do what you want. 
doesn't that to some degree again show how people so desperately want to be controlled and yet inside they have this aversion to control and you know so they'll turn around and say you know that church is controlling heck if I had a quid for every time anybody said that I would be very very rich Mm. when I know for a fact that is not the truth because you know when all said and done you, you come to the um, understanding, um, and I, I, I don't re- recall the, is it Hebrews, when it's talking about when we go from being infants yeah. to being mature, Hebrews you know, if we really six. are going um, the new covenant way, it's actually encouraging people to grow up and actually be mature and take responsibility. But what you find even in the Christian faith, people don't want to take responsibility for their actions they're actually looking for somebody else to say what's right or wrong in order that somehow, um, you know, they can be absolved or they can blame some, somebody else. Um, I don't know whether I asked a question there or whether I just no, said I think... something. But, but you, you know what I mean? I mean, we, we found just recently that, you know, there are a few things that have, have come up that we've had to deal with where somebody from another leadership in the city has said to somebody... If you do this, i.e. have a non-Christian partner, girlfriend girlfriend or whatever, then you can't be a Christian. that, That will actually exclude you. And you think, why does that person hear that and embrace it and accept it almost so easily when actually there is nothing other... We've got to get to it, haven't we? Other than the scripture that says, don't be unequally yoked to an unbeliever, which maybe we need to have a little little chat about, but that's not what I'm really wanting to cover right now. It's, is it some sort of thing within us that actually desperately would prefer for somebody to tell us that is right, that is wrong, and then even if I choose to do it... Somehow, at least I know where I stand. Now, that sounds awful because it's like, well, if you're saying do this and you're out and a person says, okay, I'm going to do that and I'm out, that sounds a bit crazy. But I mean, you could say, well, that's what love does, doesn't it? I mean, if you truly are in love with somebody, you might say, stuff it. This is what I want. You know what I'm saying? So it just amazes me that, that there's that sort of desire in humanity that says... Uh, make my decisions for me, even to the point of telling me that, okay, I, I, you know, you're not allowed to have a non, non-Christian partner to the degree that they'll accept that and say, well, I'm going to have one anyway, but that means that I'll accept your word that I'm excluded from the kingdom of God. What, what have you any comment yeah, it, to make it, on that? It, it comes, I mean, I'll be a little more blunt um, it comes from the um, sometimes the shock and the disappointment of watching uh, some people take counsel from situations outside uh, of the rock um, that in many ways are more severe in their advice than would have been here. But somehow accepting that immediately without seeing 
the conflict with the grace that is being taught here and that the confusion has been how can you be listening to to a message of grace and acceptance and 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 good input that you know says you know like Paul says everything is permissible not everything is beneficial making sure we know that you know the choices in our life produce consequences uh, and yet finding that people will so readily receive that counsel over this message comes down to what I believe Chris was saying, that it's this crazy, so, so crazy thing in this. So then, though, that, that this scripture that does say, you know, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, because that is basically what is being uh, yeah, that, lifted to say, let's not do this. That's one of the aspects. Um, uh, I mean, obviously not the only the only one but one of the aspects um, and unequally yoked to an unbeliever sounds pretty straightforward if you're a Christian don't don't go out with a non-Christian or don't be in business with the non-Christian right because you've got to take it or further don't be on the same football see, team as a non-Christian what about work colleagues don't make an investment with the non-Christian so there are, if you take that thinking along, you can get that. Now, here's my problem. Uh, unequal yoking to an unbeliever. The question is how you define unbeliever. It's very interesting that the statistics, particularly in America, but um, very similar here, are that divorce among Christian couples in America is exactly the same percentage as divorce among non-Christians. And that the number of American Christian young people who own up to sleeping with a partner outside of marriage is exactly the same percentage as the non-church. Now, that's concerning for this reason that, that the issue of unbeliever becomes a big question. Um, again, if you take a biblical concept on this and go back, um, there are Jews who talked to Jesus about the inappropriateness of what he was doing because as far as they were concerned, they were believers and he was not a believer. Um, because yes, they believed in principle what Moses taught and what the law said, but the question would be, were they believers? Were they believers in the God of Jesus? But you would have been a brave person then to have called them unbelievers. Well, Jesus was a brave person. Because he says, you say Abraham's your father, you say God's your father, but I'm telling you the devil's your father. In other words... Unbeliever is, a, is where the thing hinges on that's very interesting. So I, I am not as caught into that as at one time I would have been because, again, my own experience and, um, you know, you don't know half of the stuff that, that goes on or half the stuff that I know. I have, I have seen as many Christians uh, unequally yoked as I have Christian with non-Christian or non-Christian with non-Christian because that, 
the, the belief system that drives it can often be a problem. So um, having got into that, I mean, in, in one sense, I've got down something that is, you know, it's a subject that probably deserves more looking at in its wider context to help, particularly when we've got some of the young people in on a relationship level, um, particularly. But I think the issue is on that more... Um, more the fact that we can get off on trying to define what that is rather than understanding that the lesson on, often in that is what we've been trying to raise, that, that um, we'd rather someone actually tell us you can or you can't, you must or you mustn't, than somebody say, well, something strange happened in the New Covenant. Um, because you can't forgive something that's actually not needing to be forgiven. So we come into this whole different idea of, of the Abba of Jesus, the God of Jesus, and, and therefore within that, um, the struggle becomes, do we still want to live life by somebody telling us that's right, that's wrong? So I think kind of trying to work my way back from where we were. Sometimes what we'll do is we will take counsel from somebody who has no particular involvement in our lives and no necessarily authority in that life because it, it, it ticks those boxes. And I have a particular view on that. Um, there are two things. If I then submit to that, what's right, what's wrong, and um, uh, and it doesn't work, I can blame somebody. I can always blame somebody other than me. Let me take you back to the garden. Um, Eve eats from the tree because she listens to the counsel of someone who was counselling her about what was right and wrong. And she eats from the tree and then when God turns up, she said, it wasn't my fault was the serpent's fault. And Adam says, it wasn't my fault, it was the woman's fault. Or it might even be your fault, God, because you made the woman. So that whole, that whole thing brings us back again to, to where we can do one of two things. It either puffs our ego, I kept the rules, or, or alternatively, it gives us someone to blame. And I hate that we're so comfortable with that, but if we're honest, we, we are. Hey, we've got about well, three or four minutes. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe what we should do is is let you go away and have a think about some of this stuff, and then um, questions that come from the questions, we can then maybe um, either get them in to the website or get them into Maggie, so that then we can have actually a very clear. You know, we can consider and draw the different aspects of questions together to talk about because I don't want to keep you too long um, tonight. Um, what one other thing I'd like to challenge you, if it's okay, is the um, uh, it's the on the flip side of what we've been talking about. It's the well, I've always believed that, which we also encounter. Um, I would say a couple of things to that. One, 
if you have, you've had a funny way of showing it. Uh, and two, if you did, why didn't you say something about it? Um, now, let me also say, if we believe what the new covenant says, that a man will not have to teach a neighbor or his friend saying, know the Lord, because they'll all know me, then, then what happened is something inside of us resonates with, with what, we are, what we're being told. But sometimes if we think, well, I've always believed that, we, first of all, we don't stop to really grasp what's being said, and secondly, we don't realize how we're not living by it. Again, I'm, I'm going to be very specific about a situation I was in, um, where someone told me, well, to be honest, and I've always believed that. You're not telling me anything new. Uh, you know, I've always believed that and I've always understood that and uh, followed that up by saying, um, you know, the problem is that, that you and Chris, you, you talk the talk but don't walk the walk. Um, not many weeks after that, the person who said this was gone. So my question would be, who's walking the walk and who's talking the talk? So if we knew it all along, we knew about forgiveness and we knew about grace and we knew about faithfulness, then there are some things that you just can't do. Um, and I, you know, humbly present to you that I have certainly tried to live my life by saying in the situations I've faced, there's some things I can't do, some things are not an option. Uh, no matter how tough it gets or how difficult things are or how depressed and frustrated you feel, some things are not an option because if we're going to walk the talk of this thing, then, then you know, forgiveness 70 times 7 and all those things become a reality. So um, I'm, I'm not saying that particularly to criticize the person, just to make you aware that all of us can come out with such nonsense when it comes to to this business and, and really need to check our own lives because I think on the one hand we have always believed it but on the other hand we haven't always known that we believed that. We have to have the honest enough to say do you know what when I hear this it kind of something in here goes and I think, I think the reason is because we always wanted God to be like that. We always wanted the gospel to, to go to those places but there is a difference between a seed of truth hoped for in the heart and actual, factual, experiential, practical knowing. And that's what we're trying to come to. And just one illustration on that. If you go into a canyon and shout, um, the rocks are not shouting back at you. Okay. Uh, it's what's called an echo. Okay. The echo did not originate with the rocks in the canyon. The, the echo originated with the voice, but, but now the canyon joins in what's been said into the canyon by echoing back. So the canyon could convince itself and say, I've always known this. When actually what the canyon has, has the ability to reflect back the sound that is spoken and it echoes it back. What I believe happens in, in, in our lives sometimes when we we hear truth, we can feel like, I've always known that, but really what's happening, there's an echo coming off us, which is good. There's an echo coming back to the sound, and um, you know, I'm not by that saying, I'm the sound and you're all the canyon. Um, I'm saying I'm also echoing a sound, the sound from heaven. Jesus, the word, 
shouted into the canyon of the world. And all of us, all we're doing is echoing back um, what it is. I, I haven't come to some new understanding of grace. I've actually echoed back some very old understanding of grace that hit my heart and, and bounced back. And at times I thought that's what I was saying it, but then I keep realizing actually it was, it was Jesus, the word that's saying that, and I'm just an echo. We just become echoes. And, and people like Chris and myself and Joel and Jenny and whoever comes and share some elements of this are simply, we're simply reflecting the voice that Jesus is the voice. He's the sound that comes from the Father that, that our hearts echo back. Now, I'm saying that for a reason, that if, if we do the have always known this thing, it's not calling a response from us, okay? It actually puts a lethargy within us. It's not, you know, the Bible talks about deep calling to deep. It's a pretty, uh, you know, it's a very poetic way of says deep calls to deep. What it means is that, is that really important things call to the place where really important things are supposed to come from. So, so the depth of all that God is calls to the depth of who you are. Okay, deep calls to deep. And we reflect that. So, so I'm only saying that in the sense that, yes, you do know it, but no, you don't. But, but don't become passive if you think you know it, because realize you're only an echo, okay? So, so, yeah. Jesus, yeah. so Jesus didn't say, he who has got something to say, let him say it, right? He said, he who's got ears to hear, let him hear. Or in other words, you have to be an echo, you have to be an echo. So, so all we are, guys, is an echo, really. We're just trying to be part of that process of sounding it down the canyon and if we do that what it calls from us is a response it calls a response so um, some of the things we've said tonight you may agree with disagree with you may have um, thoughts in different directions that's okay because you see the moment we say no you can't have any thoughts because we've we are so right that you now have to do this. We've, we've gone right to the very place we were trying to dismantle. So thoughts are okay. Don't, 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 get, um, don't let thoughts be a deal breaker. Because okay? in the old system, any opposite thought was a deal breaker. So if I believe salvation's this way and Danny believes it's another way, it's a deal breaker, right? We can't, it's a deal breaker. Um, that's not the kingdom of heaven, that's not the kingdom of God. The wonderful thing when you really understand this business of grace is that even differences of thought and opinion are not a deal breaker. So we move together as a unit, we move together as a family. Um, and it means then that rather than having that static belief that Chris talked about, we have that dynamic faith that's learning and experiencing God and knowing God and loving God. And, and I believe in that place, um, it's wonderful because, because in some ways you can't get it wrong. Because wrong is not about doing it wrong. Okay? Wrong is only when we turn our back on... Yeah, we turn our back on, on the process of God's relationship with us and become disconnected. So the, the wonderful thing is you, you can get a lot of things wrong but get it right. Because it was never on you getting it right anyway. It was on the heart and on the spirit. 
And so I, I believe that's where God calls us on. It's where the Spirit of God calls us on and pulls us out of our, our desire to settle back into that static belief um, and, and institutional thinking and the security of all that and calling us on into this wonderful relationship of, 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 of experiencing the generosity of God and him giving us opportunity to partner with him in order that we might um, bring fruit, fruitfulness to our world. So, have you okay. anything more to add? No, I think uh, we're done. I hope that's been helpful. Um, uh, again, we're just speaking from our hearts, trying to, trying to take this forward, and of course we continue to talk together individually, and we'll continue to do so. Um, I'm headed off to Texas tomorrow, so I apologize that I'm not with you for the next... Um, a uh, couple of Saturdays, um, but I'm also glad that um, he doesn't need me for this to be what it's supposed to be. So pray for me, and I'll be I'll be believing for you, and I'll be trying to make this sound even more with my uh, yeah, with all the the different groups that I will be with um, from their different backgrounds and different sizes, which is always extremely interesting. Um, shaking the cobwebs loose within them, but, um, but I believe that is also an extension of you and it's an extension of our debate tonight. It's an extension of that sound that we're looking for an echo. So, so you know, keep echoing this thing and keep, keep connected and keep moving forward. And we'll be all right. We're done, so be blessed. The Lord is with us and if God is for us, who can be against us?